Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Also, it should be noted that the release date for Karen's book, Architects of Memory, has been shifted from its original release date to September the 8th. Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniaks. On today's episode, I'm extremely excited to welcome our guest. She is a Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award finalist and Nebula Award finalist for the year of our Lord 2020. Karen Osborne, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Hilary. I'm so glad to be here. I'm super happy to have you here. Karen and I have known each other for an indeterminate amount of time. What is time? Years at this point. (laughs) Especially in 2020. Like, it's been at least a year that I've been in quarantine at this point. It's been forever. Who knows? Forever. Uh, So, Karen, you're going to be reading your story Slingshot Protocol. Is that correct? That is correct. Fantastic. I'm very excited to hear this story. Uh, When we were talking before the show, you said, I have a really excellent story for this. I think it's going to be a great fit. So I'm excited to hear it. Yeah, it didn't make it in in a very instructive way, I think. Excellent. Well, let's talk about that after we hear it. All right. So this is Slingshot Protocol. I wasn't worried when Jenna didn't come to breakfast. I should have been, but I wasn't. You're probably wondering why I didn't notice something was wrong with her in enough time to stop any of this from happening. There are, were, only two of us staffing this lighthouse, and sometimes you're as busy sticking to the schedules and doing reactor maintenance and confirming slingshot vectors that you don't have time for anything else. Hmm. Sometimes you get distracted by the deathless beauty of V616 Monocerotis, and you sit there with your jaw on the ground, marveling as it garbles up the bright glitter of its accretion disk. The truth is, I didn't really know Jenna. We only got to see each other twice a day at shift change. We ate breakfast and dinner together. We talked about new episodes of Carter at Idol, chatted Mm -hmm. about work. This morning, she wasn't there by the time I scraped jam over my toast, in the dead quiet, with a spoon, because both kitchen knives were missing. (laughs) She really should have arrived by the time I finished my usual cup of instant coffee. I left breakfast early to find her. I thought she might be sad or sick or something else. It happens. I mean, I panic all the time. Hmm. I'm panicking right now. In case someone finds this distress call, my name is Riley Beck, and I'm an engineer from the Ross Carter at Company. I had nothing to do with Jenna's plan. Please, please don't take this out on my family. It's not their fault. It's not my fault. The lighthouse was supposed to be an easy assignment, something I could do without triggering my panic disorder, but I'm going to try to tell it all straight so the investigators know what really happened, but but I, I can't. It's okay. It's okay. It's all going to be okay. It's all okay. I'm sorry about my voice. I know I sound like I swallowed a hedgehog whole. That's the smoke. <laughs> it can't be helped. This lighthouse guards a section of the approach to the K-17 sector, specifically the Monocerotis black hole. So if you're hearing this, you need to stop now. You're probably getting already too close. You're excited about getting to K-17, to the outer colonies and all that accessible neodymium, right? Then you want to avoid getting destroyed by Monocerotis, trapped in the Coruscant spin field, or entranced by the screaming husks of the battle at Tribulation. (laughs) Without my lighthouse, you'll have to rely on your own guys for the slingshot protocol, and you need to ask yourself if they're really that smart. I'm (laughs) rambling. I'm sorry. Running out of time, too. The door to Jenna's room was already open when I got there. The room felt hot and dark and wrong. In the light from the common area, I could see Jenna laying on her bed, her blanket twisted around her bare legs like she'd been having a nightmare. 
Her boots were by the door, their heels coated in something that looked like glitter. Her right hand lay limp over the side of the bed, with a framed picture laying upside down on the floor, like she dropped it when she fell asleep. I wondered what was so important that she'd waste so much of her weight allowance on a metal picture frame, of all things, so I looked. The photo was Jenna and her mom in blue co sweatshirts, standing in front of a sign, Blue Haven Colony, population 723. You've seen that sign. Everyone's seen that sign. I told you, I didn't know her well. She'd always been cagey about her past. If I knew she'd been Blue Co, that she was from Blue Haven, that her family died in these experiments, I absolutely would have told someone. I mean, maybe if she got some help, some therapy, some medication even, maybe she wouldn't have... I shook her shoulder, tried to wake her up. That's when I noticed she wasn't breathing. I hoped her stillness might be an illusion, a trick of my panic-prone mind, like that horrible extended moment when you first look at a clock or skip a heartbeat and the world stops completely. But she was as still as any dead thing, as still as her wrench or her sweater, flecks of dried white foam on her lips. My fingers scrambled for her pulse, but her skin was tough and cold like she'd been dead for some time, hours at least, and that wasn't all. Jenna's left hand was icy tight, clutching a pill bottle and a scrap of paper real paper, with actual handwriting. Her suicide note. I pried her fingers open. The bottle dropped to the floor empty, so I figured she'd overdosed on something. I don't know what. She didn't tell me in the note. I left it all up in her bedroom. There's no time to get it now, so I can't tell you word for word what it said. I know I should have shoved it in my pocket while I was still up there, so I could read it to you, but I had no idea how bad things were downstairs. Anyway, in the note, Jenna said she was sorry. That she had no choice. You know, what the serials tell you that suicide notes are supposed to say. I always thought that was dramatic license. That if you're going to kill yourself, you're not going to think about the fact that you're sorry about doing it. But I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling again. It's hard for me to stay on one thought right now. I was looking at the suicide note, trying to figure out who to call, and that's when the proximity alarm started going off like a knife to my brain. And when the proximity alarm goes off in a lighthouse guarding the perimeter of a black hole, you do something about it. I ran to the workroom following Jenna's footsteps. They were outlined in scattered crystal crunching under my feet. I didn't guess what it was until we got there and saw the carnage. The main computer housing was smashed. The circuit boards in the backup sector were rubble scattered all over the floor, glittering in the starlight. That's right, starlight. The room was dark. Too dark. I could barely see my own hands. And the beacon was out. She'd used a wrench to do it, the heel of her boot. Close the hatch so I wouldn't hear. I mean, the company spends millions of dollars on coding a lighthouse system that you can't hack, that you can't deautomate, that you mm -hmm. can't ruin through sheer stupidity. And they never thought for one second that a pissed off colony girl with a grudge could take it down with just a wrench and a boot heel. <laughs> Maybe if I hadn't been so tired last night, I would have heard it happen, could have stopped it. She left me the environmentals, at least. She wasn't out to kill me. She left me the exterior sensors, a working reactor. The air in the cabin tasted like ozone and bright metal. She'd ripped up half the interface with the crowbar, but there was enough left that I could see the proximity indicator. A ship was coming. A passenger liner. The beacon was out, and a ship was coming. The entire room should have been lit up so bright against the black hole you could see it cascading through the nothingness for days. But now I was completely alone, and the light was out, and the only thing I could see was the shimmering nothing of the black hole, and the ship headed straight for it. I tried signaling corporate headquarters for advice, but she'd smashed the long range. By that point, I couldn't have spoken if I tried. I was panicking so hard that I dropped the spanner twice. It felt like there was a stone in my throat, pushing up into my head and pressing against the back of my eyes. You might know how it feels. You're all frozen and shaking and electric at the same time. I couldn't move, even though I was shaking, and I was breathing so fast I ended up coughing, because I knew what was happening here. Or maybe you don't know, people rarely understand what it's like to panic. And see, it's been years since my last panic attack, and I forgot about... I mean, when you panic, you can't remember things as they actually happened. It ends up fuzzy and dark, colored by the other crap your brain is feeding you. Let me breathe for a second. Okay, I'm better. The passenger liner was called Starsong. Jenna mentioned it once. 
We talked about its chandeliers and restaurants and cocktail bars, about what it would be like to pay half a life savings to sleep in private chambers during ship's night and dance away the day with the song of alcohol in your brain. Be the kind of people who could do whatever they wanted with whatever they wanted. Starsong was flying blue co colors and the CEO's private banner. And Jenna would have realized the ship was coming three hours ago while I was still asleep when it appeared during the handoff from Lighthouse 3. Jenna would have given it initial approach instructions for Monocerotis. Jenna would have talked with the captain, confirmed that it was carrying the Blue Co. CEO, and that's why her plan included bashing the comms in with a freaking wrench because she just lost it. I mean, it all makes sense, doesn't it? If Ross Carteret had experimented on me like that, experimented on my mother, and this chance for revenge was presented to me like a free lunch? Starsong was drifting two degrees off the acceptable path. That doesn't sound like much, but two turns into three turns into seven, and then you're caught in the starving outskirts of the gravity well. And oh my god, damned if I didn't agree that the Blue Coast CEO should have been shot for what he did to his people, that in general, rich dudes are the worst. But <laughs> Starsong had a steerage section too. They wouldn't know that they were dying until it was far too late. Maybe they'd be dancing. They'd notice their feet moving slower than their bodies. They'd trip over themselves, laugh, and sip their champagne. They wouldn't know they were already dead until their bones started to turn into spaghetti and their muscles into meat, until their arteries snapped and their eyes popped like grapes, until they were chunks of tongue and tendrils and nerves, and finally just the atoms that kept human memory and compressing unspooling DNA. And if I didn't stop it from happening, it would be my fault as well as Jenna's. I tried to hail Starsong on the short range, even though I knew Jenna probably smashed that, too. There was a monster in my throat, the same old familiar clawing horror, and I had to try in case, you know? The only answer was the clicking static of interstellar radiation, the blank hum of a broken broadcast. I had to dig my nails into the palm of my left hand. Sometimes the pain helps you focus, see. Since I couldn't call on the comm or send new coordinates, I decided to see if I could fix the light itself and do things the old-fashioned way. You know, Morse code. But Jenna burned out three welding tools, melting the wires that sent the signals to the backup batteries and the extra lenses. Efficient. I wasted six minutes trying to salvage the wiring, then hacked open the top of one of the batteries to attempt a direct connection, filling the compartment with acrid smoke. Screwed up my lungs something bad. Probably some other things, too, but I don't have time to check. I know what you're thinking. And yeah, I thought I still had options, too. I tried them. Panic disorder doesn't always mean you're going to curl into a ball in the corner, even if the voices get in your head and make your hands shake. We know what we can do. We should be allowed to do it. We're fine. I'm almost out of time. I tried everything, see. I dragged the last remaining battery down to the airlock, thinking that if the interior systems of the lighthouse were damaged, I could still go EVA, connect directly to an exterior failsafe, and get the light running long enough for Starsong to realize Jenna gave them the wrong math. That's where I found the missing kitchen knives. Jenna thought of everything. She'd launched the escape pod. She'd thrown open the lockers that held the EVA suits and taken the blades to each of them. All four suits lay on top of one another like chalk-white corpses, like those pictures of the dead stacked up behind the hospital on Blue Haven. Ooh. She ruined the stitching so I couldn't get out there in time. She murdered thousands of people in those four dead suits. That's when I turned on this distress call. I don't think it's going to be enough. I'm back in the workroom, see, and there's no time left. The passenger liner is close enough to the lighthouse that I can see the graphite-bright hull, the portholes, the paint. I imagine the people on board. They'll be crowding the windows like anyone does on their first approach to K-17. Jaws open, tongue still, breath hot against the blank porthole, V-616 Monocerotis burning a blank in their memories. I'm not talking about the CEO. I'm talking about the other lives aboard Starsong. The strivers and dreamers in steerage, the middle managers working their mongrel calculus, the guys that pour the drinks and serve the food. How much responsibility did they have for the terror at Blue Haven? Jenna wanted to destroy the CEO. It was reflexive. She hadn't even thought of everyone else, hadn't thought of me, hadn't thought of the dizzy terror I'm feeling from a brain stuffed with thoughts of you can't and you won't and you will never. Mm. 
And I can't stop talking about the people. They're just like us. They're just... It's a 0814. Star song is off by five degrees and climbing. This isn't supposed to happen. This is a lighthouse. Safest extra solar position in the company. I needed a job where I could be with myself and breathe and do the exact same thing every day. My only obligation here is to make sure the coordinates are sent, to tend the light, to put jam on my bread and take my meds and write home and watch cereals and... <laughs> so this is my own suicide note. So you know what happened here. So you know what Jenna did. So you know it wasn't me. It's better if I keep talking. I can almost imagine you're here, whoever you are. I don't want to be alone. The screaming you're hearing is the reactor. Sounds like an open, seeping wound to echo this dragging, constant percussion in my head. Jenna told me not to feel guilty in the note she left, that people die out here all the time. And it's true. They do. Why should I be any different? So, uh, to my mom, this is hard to say. I'm going to try to make it home, but I have to do this first. Okay, that was a lie. I'm not going to make it out of here. Can you tell my mom that I love her? She lives on Carteret Station. Her name is Maria Beck, and this isn't going to make her proud, but I hope she'll understand someday. I'm removing the reactor maintenance hatch, then the safety housing around the main coils. The clanging you're hearing is the dosimeter. I'm nauseous and weak. I hope that's just because I'm taking a wrench to the reactor, that I don't have to sit here and watch myself rot. There's something sweet in the back of my throat. Strawberry jam. Breakfast. I'm pressing the temperature controls, pushing my palm against the input valve. It's fine. Everything is going to be okay. I mean, the panic in my hands, the pain in my back, the rock in my throat, all of this. It's what it's like to be alive, isn't it? Sucking down air, your heart beating... No, I'm fine. Breathe. Breathe. Everything is going to be okay. I'm turning up the reactor as far as it will go. That cat-like screaming noise is the alarm, the one that goes off when the world is ending. It's so bright in here that I might be blind. I'm slamming the wrench into the coils as hard as I can, over and over, and it feels like I'm being beaten up. It's almost beautiful, the fire around my feet. Fire instead of gravity. And I know they're watching from Starsong, gawping at the windows right now like we did, pointing at the lighthouse. It's burning right now. They're not going to be able to miss this. Someone's going to see this. Someone's going to understand. Someone's going to slow the ship. They have to. Someone's going to make a course correction out of the brilliant candle of my body. Someone else is going to check the vectors and start hyperventilating, shaking, the pressure behind their eyes. They're going to run to the bridge. They're going to see the lighthouse bright against the dark, steering them home. And it's going to be all right. All of these people are going to live and... Whew! <laughs> oh mercy uh that last is a run-on sentence and i think it's the only time i'm ever going to get um to use a run-on sentence in in actual writing so i mean that's fair that like <laughs> as somebody with uh with a history of panic attacks like that is how a panic attack feels and yeah you run that sentence right on. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a long sentence. It's a good one, though. It Thank is a good you. one. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, I have a history of panic myself, and writing this story, I I had to stop about four or five times because I would write myself into like breathing too hard. I'd be oh, like, oh, no. oh my heavens. And I'd have to stop and walk away and breathe and then come back and sit down and going, no, I'm not actually in a lighthouse. I'm in Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ta you need to like stop and take the writing equivalent of your Ativan and yep. then be okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it was it was me trying to work that into a story. Mm -hmm. uh, and I I tend to work things into space all the time. I put things in space. That's that's what I do. I love space. I love I love uh I love science fiction and and space stories and um sense. so that was you know, we as writers we like to think about and do things and uh and and write things about the stuff we think about all the time and um mm -hmm. so that was that was that was one of the things I did with this story. Nice. 
yeah, I really, like, everything about that was, I was listening to it, I was like, okay, yeah, I see all of the Karen Osborne in this story. <laughs> yup. <laughs> it, like, it's a very, it's a very Karen Osborne story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it is, it was very hard for me not to think about the absolutely gorgeous cover for Architects of Memory listening to that because like so the first time I saw the cover for your debut novel which is Mm -hmm. uh, as of the time of this airing coming out next week holy wow what the heck yeah (laughs) next week but the the first time I saw the cover for that book it absolutely took my breath away it was like you know, this is this is spaceship books right here, or in this case, spacesuit books. Mm-hmm. I when I saw the cover of that book, I I couldn't speak for a good, I I, I couldn't speak for a good. Uh, I I want to say like a minute. Like I was across the table from my editor, and my <laughs> editor's just looking at me, and I'm just like, this is everything I ever wanted. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, for those of you listening, it's a woman in a spacesuit, and the light work that the artist did behind it's the so spacesuit is just so intricate and beautiful, and it's it was like it was dragged straight from, from the book and put on the cover. It's, it's, it's not just pretty, let me just say. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is, I, I will... Say this as sort of a humble brag, it is such a cool thing for me to know so many authors that, like, I get to see their covers, like, as spoilers for things. I got to see the Architect's cover, I got to see uh, the cover for Val's first book, Mm -hmm. and we all got to flip out about that Julie Dillon cover and the Space Cats. (sighs) That is Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez. Fabulous book. And the sequel, uh, I believe, is out right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Prime Deceptions. Yes. And Um, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to read it. (laughs) Yeah. We are are recording this in June of 2020, so it Mm -hmm. is still a little ways out, but uh, listeners, there will be links in the show notes for all of these books. You should absolutely be buying them. 100%. And pre-ordering them if they are not yet out from your local indie bookseller. We love the indie booksellers. Yes. I'm trying to keep my favorite indie booksellers here uh, alive in Baltimore because we have many of them and they are all wonderful. And I I just don't want anything to happen to any of them. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to hear some things about why you got this trunked. Well, I... It... I, I, it was hard trunking it because I think it's pretty well written, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I didn't see this until I had gotten about two rejections on it, but that it spoils the ending in like the first, the first couple paragraphs when Mm -hmm. she establishes this is a distress call and it really, when you have a distress call, it really only ends one of two ways. Either mm-hmm. the, yeah, I mean, either the person wins the day and saves all the people, or or the person doesn't win the day, and it's a question of just how bad it gets. Right. So you're setting an expectation that, A, you'll have to meet, and B, that isn't always exciting. Mm-hmm. Because if it because if you're if you're reading it, it's like, okay, so it's gonna end in one of two ways. And I could have thought of a third way to do it, but I didn't. Right. And mm-hmm. I and I still haven't been able to. Like I still haven't been able to figure out how this ends other than like I mean, I suppose she could, you know, go out in an EVA suit and and like and, and fix the and fix the uh, comms or something, but that's also not exciting. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'm all about the exciting stuff. I'm I'm about like I'm I'm about twisting things and and um, one of the things, one of my favorite things I've ever written is that paragraph about people dying in a black hole. 
I'm sorry to say it, but it's <laughs> it's just so gruesome, and I was it so was proud of it. And, and I'm just so sad I'm never going to be it. able to use it. <laughs> so the screen that I am looking at that you are on is basically right in front of one of my bookshelves, and I can glance one foot to the right of you and see my three volumes of uh, Junji Ito's Uzumaki. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with, but he is... I am not, no. uh, He is a horror manga artist and draws some of the most just absolutely gloriously grotesque, like, body horror that you will ever see. I, if you are into body horror, I would highly recommend <laughs> Uzumaki and uh, all of Ito's other work. And also his completely non-horror, uh, he has an autobiographical series that is just about him living with his cats. That oh, is the exact great... same art style, just without <laughs> any of the body horror. See, that's the wonderful thing about writing, though, because I didn't think I was into body horror until I wrote this story and my novel and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, I, I, I had no idea, like, and all of a sudden, yeah. and, and there's body horror in the novel, too, uh, very, very much so. And, you know, and, and every so often you write something and you're like, oh, okay, I guess <laughs> I'm into that. That's new and interesting information. Yeah. <laughs> And that's that's one of the things I just really love about writing. Yeah. I think it was on Twitter recently that Ryan Boyd was saying they said something about how Animorphs got a whole generation of kids into body horror. Animorphs. That was that I think that was a little after my time. I never was yeah. that like people people turning into animals? Or? That is a group of kids uh, get zapped by aliens and are able to turn into animals. And like the cover of every single book is like this, you know, like a, a werewolf transformation sequence. Oh, fabulous. Um, I, I'm so sorry I missed this. Oh, man. They're so good. <laughs> and like the the whole series is about like, dealing with PTSD and the trauma of war and cuz like the these kids just get sucked up into this intergalactic war basically oh my <laughs> and these are you know these are like middle grade chapbooks that i just devoured when i was like 11 and 12 like we had the whole series in our classroom library and yeah they are they are fantastic uh i think they were recently released online as just like a series of free ebooks i'm not sure i'll see if i can pull up the link and i'll put that in the show notes as well but oh that'd be that'd be cool to read that would be really cool to read i i love reading things from you know childhood again and 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 seeing what you got out of them like as an adult what stuck Mm -hmm. with you what didn't stick with you um, things that were like, oh, I, I, I understand why I love this. And then other stories that are like, oh, oh my, okay, we're, we're just going to like put that over there in the corner and pretend we didn't read that. Mm. Some things got hit by the suck fairy and some things did not. Yeah, some things really got hit by the suck fairy. We will not be naming names. Yeah. <laughs> if you would like to hear authors naming names about things that got hit by the suck fairy, I believe that one of the recent, maybe episode 61 of Be the Serpent, they are talking about nostalgia and do name names of some books that got visited by the Suck Fairy. It's sad, though, because, you know, I mean, there are... It it was so good when you were, like, 12 or 13 and you're going through that moment and then you look back on it and you're like, "That, that, that, that's actually sexual assault. My God, what... What? Yeah. And, 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 and and it's interesting to see the stuff you don't see that goes right over your head. And then you think about, you know, taking your nephews or your kids to a Disney movie and mm-hmm. how that operates on both levels and how good stories operate on a number of levels. Yeah. Yeah. Which this one doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am currently rewatching all of the Netflix She-Ra reboot after mainlining it 
a couple of weeks ago. I am now re-mainlining it, and it is one of those things that I can watch as a, you know, 33-year-old man and feel like, yeah, this does not have the Suck Fairy in any way, shape, or form. Oh, fabulous. I can't wait to mainline it. I don't have Netflix yet, so, I mean, I I, I can't believe I got through gosh knows how many months of quarantine without Netflix, um, mostly deadlines, I yep. suppose, <laughs> but... But I cannot wait to see it. It just looks so good, and everybody says such wonderful things about it. Super good. It is just, like, super, super queer. Uh, I'm not going to put any spoilers in here because <laughs> you have not watched it, and because I'm sure people out in the listening audience have not yet watched it, but it is yeah. just... It fills my heart with so much light and hope and light hope. That's a joke about the show, but yeah, it's it's super good. Going back to something that you were saying about the distress beacon just reminded me of, like, we write ourselves into these things sometimes where it's like, okay, this is giving away the ending or like, like there are things that we start writing a story and we're like, okay, I know how this is going to go. And then mm-hmm. you get to the end, and you're like, this is great. And then somebody else is like, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so interesting having that experience of, like, we can't always know our own writing mm-hmm. the way that an outside person does. Oh, and that's why you need betas. Yeah. I I had a bunch of betas on this story, I, and, and I just I just tried so hard to make it work. The beginning, it was, I think the very first time I I, I wrote it, it was in third person, mm-hmm. because I like third person a lot more than first person myself. That's just my own personal thing. Right. Um, and it was, and Beta said, it, 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 it wasn't close enough to what was going on. The other thing that somebody mentioned, one of my Betas, was that there's no conflict mm-hmm. with with Jenna. Jenna's Jenna's gone, Jenna's dead, Jenna's done her thing. And I I'm heavily into like I'm I'm I, I grew up with sto- with with all those golden age stories of, you know, man versus space. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And um so that kind of creeps in every so often. I really love space horror and 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 person against the world sort of mm-hmm. sort of things. But that's not that's not always something that works. It has to be a very certain character. It has to be a very certain thing to make it work. So that's another thing my beta told me that I roundly ignored before I started <laughs> sending it out. <laughs> but the betas are so important to yeah. have, even if you have someone telling you. Even if your beta is telling you things and you're like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're so wrong, it, it, it still gives you feedback. It still gives you information as to what not to do, mm-hmm. I guess you can say. So I, I was thinking off of that, that like, it is definitely a skill that takes work to learn how to listen to a beta and ignore them. Yes. And to listen to a beta feel that they are wrong and still find the value in what they're saying. Cause there's always, always, always a value in what, what they were saying. I, I really learned to work with feedback when I went to the Clarion, uh, when I went to the Clarion workshop mm-hmm. in 2017, we had a fantastic group of people from all over and they, they all had different things to say about, about the pieces. I would, I would throw them, um, more standard fantasy stuff, fantasy science fiction. There was, there was one story that, also got trunked from from Clarion. That was basically a Matrix clone. I'm very sad about it. <laughs> but every one of them had a different thing to say, and some of the stuff. Uh, sometimes uh, they would say things that I went, well, that's 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 valid, but I'm going to choose not to to accept that. And sometimes they would say things that made me go. Oh, 
that's so true. I never saw that. <laughs> and and so like getting a lot of feedback on your work kind of like rips the band-aid off of looking at your work. Mm-hmm. It it rips the band-aid off that feeling of is it good? Is it not good? Um until it's until it's just work. It's just um, something that you did, it's just words in a sentence um, that, that you have to make better, that you can make better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and that was possibly the most important thing to turn my writing from what I was just doing, me in my room, into things that started selling. I, I, I can say that beta readers um, and that Eclarian experience um, are, are, are basically the, the, the reason why I sold my novel, right. among other things. But yeah. 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 It is something. So for for me, I started writing with with uh, the intention to get published when I was still a teenager. Mm, me which too. Is you know, and and like being a teenage boy person, like you can imagine the kind of stories that I was writing. <laughs> And that I was very, like, it took me years to stop being so precious about about anything that I was doing with my writing. Mm-hmm. But, like, the thing that did it was just, I mean, partly it was going to college for creative writing and having just constant workshop experience. Of, oh, yeah, workshops. Just like, yeah, have okay, here are a dozen of your peers, and mm-hmm. they're not all going to be genre savvy. You're not always going to be able to write genre stuff because some professors are stinkers, yeah, and like, and they're Sleep all professors. going to have opinions, and you get to decide which of their opinions are like you're going to take. But mm-hmm. like everybody has something to tell you about it. Yeah, and you can and you can look at and, and, and you can look at someone and go, that's wrong. But you also have to look at it and go, there's always a right in the wrong. Um mm-hmm. even when you're dealing with writing. Not 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 morality sometimes, but <laughs> when <Right>. you're dealing <laughs> with when you're dealing with writing and work, um, you can always look at someone and say like, like for example, uh, I mean, when I wrote this, I, I didn't think it needed Jenna in it, but I can look at that and go, and 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 like like part of me still goes, maybe there was a way to do it to not put Jenna in, but part of me remembers what that editor said and goes, do I want to put Jenna in? And the answer is, it would probably be a better story for it. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, no, nope, I don't want to write that. So. And and that's and that's part of the voyage of discovery as a writer, right? You know, mm-hmm. and and all of that, even the negative stuff, is is just fodder for the fodder for the next thing that you do. Yeah, yeah, it's and all extremely grist in the extremely middle. valuable. And it is like one of the most important life hacks I ever discovered for my personal writing like my own before I just stopped being precious about things my -hmm. life hack for how to kill your darlings was versioning my drafts like Ah. every single draft has a distinct version number and I can you know I can sequence them all out in my my folder for each one and so I never have to like, I have never once returned to an old draft and been like, oh yeah, there was this thing that I absolutely loved that I had to cut out, but mm-hmm. that I just, like, I couldn't bear to cut it at the time, but I knew it was the right thing because everybody told me so. Yeah. And actually recovered that because it turns out it wasn't that important. But yep. to be able to have those dis- discrete versions and say, okay, if I need that, it is back in this version. I don't have to, like, 
go mm-hmm. through revision history, doing undos and losing changes and anything like that. You just you just cut it. You make a new version that doesn't have that thing, and it's there if you need it, and you never will. And it's just like a couple dozen K on your disc. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot as I've been working in technology, especially that like mm-hmm. I even though I am not myself a software developer, I work with software developers pretty closely mm-hmm. sometimes. And so I think I end up thinking about like version control and like even I was tweeting the other day about this, about version numbering and using uh, like software semantic version numbering for your drafts. And I was like, this is silly and I probably will never do it, but like it's an interesting idea to be like, okay, so the patch version number is just like sentence <laughs> level, you know, punctuation, yep. usage, grammar stuff that makes no differences. The minor version is backwards compatible changes. And then the major version is like timeline changes, character changes, anything like that. And just thinking about it in that way of being able to preserve the history of your stories. I really like that idea. I I, I do that to a point. Um, Sometimes, sometimes I'm just lazy and I forget the version. Um, I I, I can be kind of lazy in that way. I'm the kind of person to label something final, 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 dot, final, dot, doc. I'm that person. Um, But (laughs) I, I was thinking, I was thinking about when you were, when you were talking about versioning, how, that's that's publishing though because publishing is versioning whether you're doing short or 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 or, or big and it's not done until it's printed it's not mm-hmm. done until it's printed you you can go back and change things to a to a point sometimes your editor will be be like no you can't do that but yeah. <laughs> um but to a point um what what you hand in you're 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 going to tweak things in a copy edit um your editor's going to have questions and it it it's not over until you hold that book in your hand and even in some ways sometimes authors get their rights back and do the definitive version or whatever yeah but and if we're one talking of the tricks, ebook yeah. you also have like with ebooks you can actually patch the ebook to be like okay there was a copy yeah. editing mistake Wow, you can patch an ebook? I didn't know that. It's That's amazing. Fantastic. I don't know how often it happens. Uh, most of the time I've seen it on uh, the Bad River site. I've seen it with their ebooks that they'll just update the cover to be like, uh, I think this happened with The Martian for me, that I had mm-hmm. bought The Martian way back just when people were talking about, oh, this is a good space book. And I was like, I want a good space book. And then they made the movie of it, and so they patched the ebook so that it had Matt Damon on the cover. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> well, who doesn't want Matt Damon? I on mean, the cover? yeah, I mean, come on, this is not something not I'm going to argue with. But like, <laughs> I think that's that's most of the time what happens. But I know, especially in the like self pub space, that there is a lot of like okay, I've had a chance to, like, you know, somebody wrote to me and was like, hey, there are these grammatical errors in this. There are these punctuation errors, and you can actually go back in and change it, push a new version. You know, it, I think it's also a thing that kind of happens with fanfic. Mm, that, like, I've done that with my own fanfic, yes. If you And if you go on AO3, you can see, like, what's the most recent revision of a story and like it'll tell you you know this was last edited on and it has that meta space for commentary of like okay here are my notes and you can actually like put in patch notes if you wanted to patch notes on fanfic that's very modern i love it i know <laughs> it, it's one of, something one of i thing- thought about because it's always like where my brain is that i want to like know what i changed yeah, I I'm I'm kind of a person that when when they're done with something I don't like I if if I am allowed to 
continue working on something, I will work on it until <laughs> it's blue in the face and dead. So it, it, at, at a certain point, um, my very first editor, my very first newspaper, um, I remember, like, I think it was the the third week I was in, I, I was trying to finish this for deadline and deadline had passed. And he shows up at my, <laughs> he shows up at my door and he knocks and he's like, you know what, Karen, art is never finished, only abandoned. And I know that's yep. someone else's quote, but forever it's going to be my editor, Jim saying that. And he's just like, send it to me. And I'm like, it's not perfect. And he's like, send it to me. And I'm like, but it's not perfect. He goes, send it to me and i did and it made it in and no one had any sort of comments on its perfection because you mm-hmm. know sometimes you just have to finish it and send it out and and be done with it yeah and i there is i know for me there is a strong anxiety about that that you oh, know yes. whatever you're putting out this is this is my public face i am mm-hmm. hillary b bisniex i am a writer <laughs> and like i'm 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 somewhat less precious about that now, just because I'm a podcaster as well, and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. this is I am going to spend four to five hours editing each episode, and then it's going to be deadline. I have my like official deadline of when the the show has to go up, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to make myself crazy. So it's just going to be what it's going to be, and, like, it's going to be fine. People are going to listen to it. Like, people listen to so many podcasts, they're not even going to remember, even if they even notice the mistakes I make, they're not even going to remember them. And And especially with writing, there's there's only so much you can do before you cross a line into too much mm-hmm. fixes and too much edits and uh, I, th- I think a lot of people call that the last 10% if you're fiddling with less than 10% of the of, of the work it's done but I, I believe you can actually fix yourself into uh, fix yourself into oblivion you can fix a story until it's bad mm-hmm. um, so you have to so, so part of uh, knowing when to submit or when to be done um, is learning how to find that line and find where you're comfortable there and I'm I'll, I'll tell you when I get there so <laughs> <laughs> if it ain't broke fix it till it is yeah exactly <laughs> yeah for real for real so we've been you know kind of circling around like oh, these are things we wish we had known. But I wonder if maybe at this point in the show, uh, this blue police box just showed up in the corner here, and maybe we can, like, step into this time machine for a second (laughs) and go back and talk to baby writer Karen and let her know some of the things that you wish you had known back then. Oh, gosh, baby writer Karen. Baby fiction writer Karen needs to know a couple things. Number mm-hmm. one, she needs to know that it's going to take a while, and that's all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first started, I remember the moment I learned that writers got paid, um, <laughs> that being a writer was a job, that like the books in the library weren't just there for fun. Uh-huh. I remember that moment. It was seventh grade, and my teacher had just told me, and I was like, wow, this is so awesome. So, you know, from then I just wanted to be a writer. And I thought, you know, when I was starting out and even in college that by 25, I'd have a novel by 25, it'd be, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be out there and, and 25 passed and, and 30 passed and 35 passed. And at 35, I was like, you know what, if I don't do it now, I'm never doing it at all. I'm just going to do something for fun. And we're going to start off with that and see what happens. But she also needs to know that she couldn't have done it at 29. Like, I wrote a novel at 29, and it got trunked, and it is never seeing the light of day. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have enough experience at that point. Like, I had a lot of experience. I was working I was working at newspapers. I was seeing a lot of things, writing about a lot of things, talking to a lot of people. But, but there was just still some stuff I needed to know. And um, I would get that in my 30s. Mm-hmm. And so by the t- yeah by the time I was thirty five, I had had this job where I was running my own business and I was working eighty hours a week. And um, 
it was hard and I ran into some things. That's where my panic comes from. And I had to look at myself and really figure some things out about myself and where my priorities were. And I don't think I could have gotten there without the without the bad stuff that happened in my 30s. Mm-hmm. So baby Karen needs to know that it's going to take a while and that that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and that's not something that's easy to hear when when you're when you're 25 and you have all that energy and you're really gung ho and you want to do it now because you know I mean that never changes you're always gung ho you always want to do it now so yeah that's nice yeah which the is, other thing oh sorry uh yeah which is just it's not to say like you cannot write and get a novel published at 25 or at 20 or at 30 or any other age but you know everybody is on their own path oh yes everyone is on their own path everyone is doing their own thing and for me i needed that time Mm -hmm. you might not need that time other people might not need that time i definitely needed that time someone who is 15 and listening to this you might you might finish a novel that gets published at like 19 or 20. People have done it. Mm-hmm. But it's all about it's all about your own personal journey. Mm-hmm. And in my case, I needed the time. One of the things that I loved seeing was when I signed my book deal. I went online and I googled ages of writers on first deal. And the majority of them published their first novel somewhere in their 30s or their early 40s. That's mm-hmm. the majority, and that's the truth. And you see people on either side, and I, I, I just think, I just think that you, as a person, as a writer, need to concentrate on you and your craft and where you are. And if that's a novel when you're young that's fine if that's a novel when you're 50 that's also fine because it's going to be your novel the one that you wrote mm-hmm. the one that accurately you know accurately represents you um that carries you into the world and i think that's a beautiful thing yeah yeah i can't help but think of uh for instance martha wells or ann lecky who like you know Martha had a long, long journey to get to Murderbot author Martha Wells. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, and Lecky didn't publish uh, Ancillary Justice until she was in her 40s and went on mm-hmm. to win every award. Oh, that book is so good. It's and so Murderbot. good. And <laughs> Murderbot. I love Murderbot. I am obsessed with both of those books uh so i will say that in the final season of shira that there is a very satisfying parallel to the imperial ratch trilogy in the final <gasps> season of shira oh i need to see this now and it is <laughs> like you know, it, it's very satisfying even if you have never consumed any of those books, but as somebody who is, like, engaged with the content of, you know, a, an immortal god emperor with an army yay. of clones. Oh, yay! It is <laughs> so good. So, so good. Oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to get Netflix now, Hillary, yeah. thanks. <laughs> I really have to get Netflix. <laughs> so one of the one of the things that I actually I'm referring to the show notes that we had like written up beforehand, which okay. listeners of this show know never happens. <laughs> but that the best writing advice you've ever heard is keep your eyes on your own paper. And I think that's yes. so vital. I first heard that at uh, Viable Paradise. And I don't know why I hadn't heard it before because I'd been writing since, you know, the beginning of time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it took me until I was like 36 to, 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 to hear it. And it made so much sense. 
eyes on your own paper, because there's always going to be people ahead of you. There's always going to be people behind you. There's always going to be people who are on this podcast or that podcast or, or they're, you know, or they got to be this and you are over here and um, they got a bigger advance and you didn't or whatever. Well, whatever the case is, um, you can drive yourself bonkers thinking about other writers yeah and like and you catch yourself doing it sometimes because it's such a subjective uh business and everybody goes on their own path so you know so such a different path for everyone Mm -hmm. when when you're dealing with yourself and when you're dealing with other writers eyes on your own paper be happy for your friends successes cheer them on their you know whenever someone does something fabulous or wonderful go say go you that's great and then turn back to your own novels and your own stories and your own work and your own journey and mm-hmm. concentrate on that because otherwise you will go bonkers yeah yeah and this is especially in like the awards season <sighs> awards Super season true. is hard it's so rough like awards season is tough I mean, because all the awards themselves are run by different groups of people with different mm-hmm. sorts of judging and different sorts. I mean, because, you know, because the nebulas are run by, you know, the science fiction writers of America and they're voted on by other writers. Uh, Hugo's are voted on by fans. Locus, I think, is a board. I could be wrong. Yeah, the um, nomination is fans. Wrong about that. And then the I think the yeah. final is a uh, panel of judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have a and and uh, the the World Fantasy Award, of course, is is a panel of judges as well, and so you can look at that and go. Um, there there are two ways that awards season can mess you up, and one is uh, you don't get there, and you say I'm never going to, mm-hmm. and and never never yourself, like don't ever don't. Don't never yourself because if you never yourself, then it's never going to happen. You 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 can't say you're never going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, that's my own psychological trick is never say you're never going to do it. Oh yeah, but but you can. <laughs> but there's also a temptation to like because when when I got my Nebula nomination and it went up on Twitter, I literally spent the day like my 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 phone died. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I kept on getting so many notices, and and there's a temptation to go, yeah, I've arrived, I'm here, woohoo, I have a nebula nom, you know. But you can't do that either because you haven't arrived; you've just begun. And mm-hmm. um, and and Everest, I I forget who said this first, but I I think it um, it, it's somebody in the Sifwa. Oh gosh, oh gosh, I can't get the name. Who said this? Um, if if you're, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> if, if if you recognize this, but there's always Everest around the other corner. I mean, you you you, you walk up Everest in this career, and then you have another Everest. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I handed in Architects of Memory, I felt so good. I felt like the world had just fine. You know, I had just arrived. I was here, and then I turned around and went, oh. Now I have to write the second. <laughs> and all of a sudden, because whenever you finish something, there's always something around the other path. And if you're worried about what other people are doing and mm-hmm. where they are, you're going to trip on a rock and fall and break your nose. Yeah. So you just got to keep yourself focused on what you are doing during awards season, during every season. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it it is... Like, I think it becomes especially important to do that when you are in a community of writers. Because there is... Otherwise, it's just so easy to fall into... Like, I have friends who started writing at the same time as I did. And it can be really easy to, to like, compare my own successes or perceived failures to theirs... Mm-hmm. And, like, in the past when I've done that, I feel really shitty. But when I when yeah. I can step back and say, like, oh, yeah, no, they have, they have been on this path where they have been able to do these things, where they have spent this time, and 
I've spent my time in other ways. I have been on a different path. Like, my life looks completely different from theirs. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Like, I'm in a good place. And being able to to just see that is super important. It, it's it's the same thing with, like, imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. There's... If, if, you, if you keep... Like, when, when I started... Uh, I certainly never thought that like like I, I I started writing seriously again um during NaNoWriMo of 2015 that's when I started Architects of Memory so November of 2015 mm-hmm. um because I sat down and I was like okay if if I'm ever going to do this I really should start now mm-hmm. uh so never in my wildest dreams mm-hmm. did I ever think back in November of 2015 that I would have like a duology with Tor and and two 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 award nominations for these big awards and like people you know going wow that was a great story I didn't even think I would have any stories out there mm-hmm. but it's so, so I mean, again, you get that imposter syndrome too of of, of like, oh, I don't do I really belong here? Mm-hmm. I'm on I'm on Hillary's podcast. Do I really belong here? Um, but it's it's the same thing with imposter syndrome and keeping your eyes on your own paper. It's it's whether you're jealous of people or whether you're kind of down on yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's that comparison to uh, other things and people and and stuff that will hold you back for sure. And and I'm not saying that I don't do it now because I do. I mean, we're we're on a Slack together. Oh right? yeah. Like yesterday, I was like yesterday, I was like, oh god, I'm never gonna. And all my friends were like, no, yeah, stop. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I was like, I'm never gonna. But um. The the more time you spend thinking about other people's journeys, the less time you spend on your own mm-hmm. and what, wherever that journey might take you. Yeah, for real. So we've we've spent a lot of time talking around Architects of Memory. I was wondering if you could give us an elevator pitch about this book that's coming out next week. So uh, Architects of Memory uh, centers on indentured salvage pilot Ash Jackson, who's threading a very thin needle after an alien attack that killed her fiancé and ruined the company she hoped to join as a citizen. So she's sick with a terminal illness, but if her new company finds out, she'll be tossed out of the program, and she won't qualify for citizenship or the health care that might lead to a cure. And on top of that, she'll never see her new love, her ship's captain, ever again. And so that's the stressful environment in which she's working when she uncovers a strange new alien weapon in battlefield wreckage of tribulation. And that's a weapon that everyone, every company seems to want and threatens to turn her into a weapon herself. And it's wild and glorious and hopeful and terrifying. And I hope people love reading it as much as I loved writing it. Yes. Uh, And that comes out on August the 25th from Tor Books. August 25th. You got it. Available wherever books are sold. Available wherever. I don't know if there'll be bookstores open by then, but you can get it online. (laughs) Yep. I will have links to the book in the show notes, uh, linking to indiebound.org, which is a great place to find books, because they will link you to your local bookstore. Oh, I love that. And it's important to order from your local bookstores if you want those local bookstores to continue. Yes, absolutely. We don't know in june what august will look like in terms of the pandemic but we sure hope that those bookstores are still open and the way to do that is order from your indies some of them offer curbside pickup some of them offer delivery if you're not sure check out the website they'll probably tell you because they would love to sell you books they would love to sell you books karen before we go uh where can our dear listeners find you elsewhere on the internet I am at Karenthology at Twitter and Instagram, and my website is uh, com. Fantastic. Uh, listeners, I would highly recommend following Karen on Twitter and Insta. They are both quality social feeds. Lots of Star Trek. Lots of Star Trek. <laughs> Some just absolutely fantastic space nerd shit. Yes, I, I'm. I'm. I, I, I use Star Trek uh, gifts uh, ra- rather liberally. So if you like that kind of thing, 
you know, come yeah. over for a spell. Absolutely. Karen, thank you again so, so much for being on the show. It's truly been a pleasure. Oh, this has been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for letting me, uh, thanks for letting me find a home for that little, yeah. <laughs> for my trunk story. <laughs> it's so much fun. One of the great joys of doing this show is being able to have an outlet for other people's trunked stories where they can say, hey, I acknowledge that this is trunked. I can acknowledge the reasons. And also, yep. I would love to share this with people because it still means something to me. Yeah, and and I hope that it can, you know, I hope that it can help other people to to work on their own work and, and, and get where they need to be. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listeners, join us again next month when our guest will be author Caitlin Starling. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBizniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Reject.